Okay, I'm plugging in my headphones so that I can say this on the mic. It's actually really creepy because Eugene is backlit, so like you can't really see his features. It's like this is the second time this week that I felt like Eugene is this shady guy who kidnapped your child and then is like video calling you to ask you for don't the even ransom. know it's me. Yeah, you really don't. I really don't. It could be someone else entirely. Yeah, you can't even tell it's me. No, not at all. Like, it could be a fake Eugene entirely. Like, I can't make out any facial features. No bun, nothing. It's weird. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. My topic this week is the future of diet Prada. How do I, how do I start this? I guess. Okay. I know how to start this because I wrote notes for it. Oh right. my gosh. Did you forget how we do this podcast? <laughs> I forgot how we do this podcast in a matter of a week. All right. So Amy O'Dell penned this piece for the business of fashion. As the title suggests, the future of diet Prada, it's pretty clear what it's about. But for those unfamiliar with Amy O'Dell, she was editor at Cosmopolitan.com from 2013 to 2018, where it won a 2017 National Magazine Award. She's also, and this was her title, the founding blogger behind New York Magazine's The Cut, which I quite enjoy. I don't know if you read The Cut. I do. But it's pretty good. So why is this part important? I would say that it's because Amy O'Dell knows a thing or two about the challenges around digital media. Yep. And for those unfamiliar, Diet Prada is in many ways, sort of a modern media company. It doesn't really operate via website. It's more primarily through Instagram, Instagram stories. Is it a modern and media company? Yeah, because if you're not doing it from a traditional sense, then I think, yeah. because uh, it's, like bar- start- it's like barely a company, but okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, uh, I guess company is up for interpretation and debate, but... If you're one person, is that a company? If you're two people, is that a company? I'm just I'm yeah. just asking. Yes. Oh, this is uh, this reminds me of some other some other things someone asked me about whether something was a dumpling, but I don't want to get into that. <laughs> no way. Me... Oh my gosh, I want to be in that conversation. Sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm I'm gonna roll with it. Diet Prada is this right. modern media company. Yeah. Mostly publishes so for, on social media. For those unfamiliar with Diet Prada, it's the brainchild of Tony Liu and Lindsay Schuler, and they both of them met at Eugenia Kim, a uh, designer but they left to do Diet Prada full-time. So I think for some people that look at Diet Prada as whether you like them or not, I think they're considered one of the more exciting media outlets in fashion currently because they're super straight to the point, like kind of a really hard-hitting stance on fashion, and they really push accountability in fashion. They do. They call yeah. out a lot of brands for products and campaigns and just decisions that they see as being unethical or hypocritical or just like insufficient, you know, not good enough to standards that consumers should expect. 
one thing I wanted to bring up from another article, a New York Times article in March, was that both Lou and Schuler mentioned that they're making less money now than they were at their previous jobs, despite the fact that Diet Prada is their full-time gig, what I assume to be most of their time. I so mean, this part's actually crucial. Yeah, this but part, it's like, like unsurprising to back. me. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it's unsurprising. Is it though? Hmm. How many I mean, times followers. we used to on this podcast talk about when media companies folded and we stopped because it was just happening too often to spend episodes talking about every outlet no, that closed down. That part's valid, but I think there's a threshold that once you pass that threshold, everything becomes a little easier. The flywheel of generating followers and attention has sufficiently spun up. Are you familiar with flywheels? Have we talked about this? I feel no, like we have. No, what are flywheels? So flywheels are something that take a lot of energy, time to build up, right? And once you build it up, however, it actually operates quite seamlessly. Mm-hmm. So so it's like, it's almost as though you could t- think of like starting up a company as like a flywheel in many cases. But like, oh, actually, you know what's a great one is like, oh, this is kind of, I don't know if it's the best one, but it's the one that came to mind is like Amazon Web Services, right? Yeah. There was an immense amount of infrastructure required as well as investment. But now it like, it literally runs the internet, right? And everything after the fact, because the infrastructure has been put in place, kind of runs itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the same angle you could take with social media influencers slash media. It's like, once you build the brand, it's it sells itself, right? You and I have been part of a company that had that probably at this point in time now like doesn't really need to sell itself. Okay. That, yeah, yeah. Way. No, I'm on board. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For a second there, yeah. I was confused about which company you were referring to that we were both a part of, but it's, it is now evident. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't mention it. I don't know. It seems like we're being really (laughs) mysterious. But I'm trying to determine, sorry to derail this, but how long since they've been doing Diet Prada full-time? I believe Diet Prada launched... uh, I know when they launched. They launched in December 2014. I mean, I don't know exactly when, but I also think that it's it's more like a footnote at this point. But I think it's important at this moment. You think so? Why do you think it's important for us because, to know exactly when they went full-time? Because if they're still not making money, don't you think the amount of time they've been doing it full-time is relevant? Mm, okay, yeah, that's fair. The reason why I dismissed it was, I think, ultimately, their amount of time spent dedicated to this is beyond just like, oh, I've been doing it for two months. You know what I mean? Like, it, it actually has passed. Like, I think once you pass, like, you know, let's say 12 months, then I really feel as though that you can start to look at whether or not I've been really trying to make this a full-time thing. Okay, sure. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was thinking about. It. So if I was to continue to describe Diet Prada, and this is my own personal opinion, I would say that it's this snarky, self-aware, air quotes, woke friend of yours who knows everything about fashion, but isn't necessarily the effortlessly cool kind. And I don't actually mean this in a sort of pejorative or throw shade kind of way, but the part about Diet Prada that I think ultimately needs to be considered is that it's interesting, fascinating for different reasons, but I don't know if it's necessarily cool. Because I think the reason why it's a little bit challenging is because there's a sense of intellectual rigor that goes with Diet Prada. Mm -hmm. And I often don't associate that with success in fashion. Yeah. 
Do you yeah. agree with that? Well, yeah, because like the you'd said it yourself. Cool usually means effortlessness. And what Diet Pride does is put a lot of effort into fashion. So when you put a lot of effort into something, you're not the cool kid. You're the nerdy kid. You're yeah, the kid but who I knows think that a lot. It's still important, like what they do. Don't get me wrong. But I think Oh, that, no, I think so. But the fact that we both agree that there's a level of, and I'll use that word again, like intellectual rigor and like the way they highlight their stories and the things they want to talk about maybe doesn't necessarily translate into the business and revenue streams they're pursuing, which mm. I'll get into as well. Is this the time, though, to mention that sometimes Diet Prada can seem cruel? Is that the right word? If you have something that comes to mind, you can bring it up. Like, like I think for me, I, I, I think I probably look at them differently. I just see them as a really interesting case study and someone that has pursued... Uh, media from a different light a different angle and they've done it their way and they also have found that hey what they're doing actually has a lot of value given how many people subscribe to them or like follow them even though yes i know that's not necessarily an indicator of success or quality but well i guess like i think about followers i think about it's not that i don't agree often with their opinions but their tone of voice like you said you know it's like snarky it's woke um, sometimes it feels a little bit like you're leading a mob or like trying to create a mob around something like to generate outrage rather than yeah. to be thoughtfully critical about something. And there's definitely things to be critical of in fashion and about, you know, misbehavior of photographers and models and designers, etc. But it. it yeah, I, I got it. I got it. I got the word. I think diet product contributes to cancel culture where it's really easy to just like say, oh, this person or this brand is canceled because of this like action that's come to light rather than to like think through, you know, why is this incorrect and like what could they do to make it right? No, I think that's a good way of looking at it. And I think that there is this extremity of cancel culture that is... I'm trying to think, is it, is it overly heavy handed currently? Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's just like case by case in some instances, but it's definitely case by case, but I, but a lot of people do feel that it's relatively strong. Like cancel culture is something that we never, you never really talked about five years ago. No, no, no. But there's something about Diet Prada that probably would remind us of early vice where they don't feel like they have to play by media rules. Oh, yeah, they don't really give a shit, right? Yeah, yeah they don't fair. give a shit. They don't play by early media rules, which is both, like, a good thing because media needs it, right, to have, like, an injection of, wait, like, someone needs to be holding people accountable, but also that it's a little bit like playing with fire, right? Like, well, yeah. there there have to be constraints sometimes. One yeah. thing that... I we probably should have mentioned this earlier to be honest, but like what are examples of types of content you might see on Diet Product for those who haven't seen or those that are listening to this but haven't gone to their Instagram? Yeah, I love how we talk about really visual things lately. Yeah. So for example, what they'll do is they'll do like a side by side photo of the original designer of a dress and the knockoff, right? And they'll call out the knockoff brand. Also more recently, they've called out a lot of brands who have been 
racially insensitive. Last year, one big thing they broke the news on was DNG's ad campaign with the Chinese model who was eating pasta with chopsticks. That basically shut down DNG for for a few weeks. To、um, give a another concrete example, they really pick on Victoria's Secret quite a bit, and their most recent post at the time of this recording is on the left side of this image is a model wearing Agent Provocateur, and then on the right side is a model wearing Victoria's Secret, and then it's a gallery of. That same format, like left, right, side by side comparison, and then the caption. Just the first line I'll read says, "How many more coffin nails do we need before we can call Victoria's Secret dead?" And then it goes on in pretty long, like two paragraphs, about、mm-hmm. what's happening. And they tend to do quite long captions, so it's not just like like they're thoughtful about what they're saying about their editorialization. So I guess I guess to return back to. Amy O'Dell's piece. What she does is lay the land of where Diet Prada is, and what are its potential sort of revenue avenues,、uh, which include merchandise. So they'll release like a Diet Prada keychain, for example, which they've done. Brand partnerships, also something they've pursued before. So, for example, let's say、uh, a retailer wants to work with them on something,、uh, and the following are more suggestions. Like whether it was from the piece itself or from or from the comments, events and conferences. So like a diet product conference,、mm-hmm. which I think that I would picture with relative ease what type of programming you would have. Yeah, would I think it could be interesting. Me too. But then once again, I'm curious. Like,、uh, do the people that enjoy diet product would they spend a few hundred dollars on a ticket to discuss the inner workings of fashion? Or is the content itself more like part of this outrage mob mentality? This is—I don't have an answer for this.、Mm. I'm just sort of like theorizing. The interesting question because oh, because in the piece, Odell does mention that she thinks that this would be an easy sell for them. I think that I don't know about lately, but the fact that you and I and Amy Odell, and then I also know Julie Zerbo was one of the early people to interview them. Are talking about them that would suggest that they could sell a conference because this. But like, we're not typical people. This small people. sample size of the four of us. We're media people. Well, that... I think that is their audience, though. That's like a chunk of、so、their audience. So there would be a B two B thing, like, which I think actually the the fact media industry insider. The、people. fact that you've outlined those types of people actually strengthens my argument upcoming. My my kind of like concluding argument. Okay, but we're leading up yeah, to your、um, argument. So membership is another thing that people suggested. Uh, whether it's Substack, Patreon, etc., consulting, like more B two B stuff. Yeah. The biggest challenge for them, though, is that anything that's fundamentally ad driven, which at scale is arguably the easiest way for you to scale your business, is how do they maintain their hard hitting stance that pushes accountability while still receiving ad money from various brands. So they've received、yeah. a bit of flack in the past because certain brands are deemed to be sort of in their good graces, or they're just personal fans of them. Like obviously Prada is one of them. So when Prada does something wrong, generally speaking, the diet Prada hammer is a little softer or non-existent. Yep. So that is the yep, biggest yep, yep. challenge that exists for them. 
I mean, it's a huge challenge. Just to re-say what you said, it's because their entire editorial model is based off of calling out brands and saying how different fashion-related brands and people can do better. So if they sell any ads related to that industry, then their readers will be like, we just can't trust no. your editorial stuff anymore. The only way I see around this in terms of ads is to sell ads that are entirely not related to the industry. Yeah, like Dropbox. Yeah, exactly. That is a good way of looking at it, actually. I never really thought about that because... But it makes sense. Yeah, I think that, that that's it, I think it makes a way sense. of circumventing it. But I, I think we also agree that Diet Prada as a product is why it's popular. And any change to the product will essentially reduce its standing, reduce its impact. We all agree upon that, right? So that's why I was thinking, what are the options? Like, I think that ultimately, fashion of maybe of all the media industries is perhaps one of the most difficult to monetize in terms of doing proper journalistically minded content because it's like you have to be careful of this line and the types of brands that can support you often fall into this very difficult to monetize space. You're talking about fashion media. Fashion media, period. Okay. Because I think fashion media... But, but, not, but not like this, the business of selling actual apparel. No, not necessarily. I think that media okay. itself is Just actually a little bit different. Because I yeah yeah no definitely I agree but because your original question you said you just used the word fashion yeah my my so my bad I've been thinking of everything that's mentioned here it's like of of all the different choices on how you can monetize a business right the ones that make the most sense to me that allow them to maintain their voice are merchandise and membership membership itself is the one that people like if the flywheel has already been spun up then I think. It, might be relatively easy for you to translate into something else. I wonder if that would make them enough money. Well, let's just do simple like the off the napkin math, right? How many followers do they have? They have like 1.5 million? Yes, that is exactly right. Yeah, 1.5 million, right? And let's say you convert 1% of them. Or should we even go even smaller? Okay, fine. We'll do 0.5%. Okay. So that's 7,500 people that'll pay, let's say... Five bucks a month. That's exactly yeah. what I would so say. Yeah. So you're making $37,500 a month. I don't know okay, what the cost of that's... overhead is for yeah. uh, running an Instagram account, but you know. But that's like a chunk of change. That, that's pretty that's good. That's like a good lifestyle business for two people. It's a start for sure. So, yeah, for two people. So I mean, like, let's say you pay themselves, I don't know, eight grand a month, right? Like 8500 We didn't do merch. How much do you think they could make a month selling I... merch? This I can picture, the merch stuff I can't because I don't know the cost of producing the merch, et cetera. So basically, they could oh, pay okay. themselves a little bit over $100,000 a year and still have almost $21,000 to put back into the company. Hmm. <laughs> so this is what I'm trying to, trying to say, like, back of the ma napkin math. Like, but then there's also things, too, like there's tierings, there's all these other things. So they, they do have the benefit yeah. of having already built up this following. It's whether this following will follow. Their merch also seems to do all right, so... Yeah. So I'm curious how much look. they're making at Eugenia Kim. To be honest, I can't see them making, you know, over a hundred grand. I don't know. Cause I, you mean per person? 
Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying like, yeah, you know, based on this amount, they could definitely do it. This is my sort of take on where it should go. But I just, you know, I think that $5 a month is very reasonable. They could probably charge a bit more because if you think of them leveraging more of the B2B clientele, which is usually what's sort of like easier avenue to make money, I'd say. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you look at all the different mm-hmm. fashion media outlets out there that are trying to charge money, like all of them are into the hundreds of dollars a year, right? Versus sixty dollars a year. Yeah. So I'm sure they can yeah. find a nice nice number in between there. I'm also curious about is do we need to care that much about about this accountability, transparency in fashion? Like how important is it really when you're just selling clothes? Like I think it's far more important to have this when it comes to politics, public policy, et cetera. Why is this important in fashion? Ah, okay. Hum, 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 hum. Part of me now is starting to think that certain media outlets and certain media industries that focus on, on particular topics maybe have a little bit less sensitivity around transparency and all that stuff because it's just a fundamentally different product. Okay, two things. One, I was going to ask you if you were going to mention Amy O'Dell's suggestion. She suggests at the end of her BOF article that she thinks Diet Prada should hire people, adopt journalistic norms, and become a more traditional media company, essentially. And that's the way to get into traditional revenue streams like advertising and subscription um, and to have greater longevity. So I just wanted to mention... I think it just changes the product too much. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, yeah, but I just wanted to mention that was Odell's suggestion relative to yours, right? And then the question about, you know, do we need what Diet Prada offers? Hmm. There's some stuff that Diet Prada focuses on, which is like the copycat stuff, like people ripping off other people's idea, which I find to be inessential because it's just that like some of the stuff is a stretch some ideas are just like part of cultural consciousness and it's hard to say whether this brand really ripped off that brand and was it malicious etc there are don't get me wrong there are instances where it's very clear that a large brand i've said this on this podcast like four times already but like Zara ripping off like in independent individual artists. And sometimes it's like super obvious and it's, and it's a shame. But other times it's like, well, they both use butterflies. Mm-hmm. Can you really say that that's a problem? So that stuff I don't know about. But like the things that are about misogyny and racism in the fashion industry, someone needs to break that news. Yeah. I don't know if Diet Prada... I mean, they don't have, like, the corner on the market, right? Like, anyone, any, it doesn't even have to be a fashion media company. Like, any news publication can talk about people in power who are abusing their power in ways that they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Or, like, who are putting down people based off of aspects that they shouldn't be, yeah. right? So... I guess I partially agree with you and partially disagree. Well, one thing that I'm, I, I want to kind of test or I'd be interested to hear is if Diet Prada took money but also didn't change their stance, right? And they actually were in some magical way able to continue on their path 
right? What would the outcome of that be? And could they potentially jump around to enough brands to make it worth their while? So let's say Prada sponsors them for the month of September. September 22nd, some news about Prada comes out and they just rip Prada to shreds. And Prada's like, mm-hmm. hey, I don't want to work with you guys anymore after this month. Fine. But, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they've negotiated, they've gotten paid, and they continue to be the publication and the media company that is unabashedly themselves. It's kind of like Vice, right? Like, I think you used the Vice example, and I think that's valid. It's like, I don't give a shit how much money you're putting in. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And either you support us, you don't. Yeah. Old Vice, at least. And maybe that is what they need to push them right now. If they have people knocking on the door and wanting to put money down, maybe that's what they need to do. That to me would be something that I've yet to see happen in real time in my sort of, I want to say lifetime on the basis of like, as long as I've been following media, I've yet to really see a media brand that has just owned that, that sort of mm-hmm. approach. I thought of another word I think I would describe as they're a bit renegade, right? Like they're only two people. It doesn't really seem to me like they want to hire anyone. It still seems very much like, a project that that Leo and Schuler are happy doing because it brings them personal satisfaction, and I this is a weird thing to say, but maybe what gives them the most freedom is to not make money off of Diet Prada and consulting or Just going to consulting. Yeah, to do something adjacent, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think membership is a good route. They're already doing merch because ultimately I think what their product is means staying accountable to their readers. So I don't see a way to earn like big money from the brands that they criticize. I see Diet Prada as a lifestyle business through and through, and that's also okay. Mm. Like literally if they... If they use that back of the napkin math that I had laid out, and you can even seeing as five five dollars a month at seventy five hundred subscribers yields almost forty grand. Like you can, even if you want to cut that number in half, like you can still. Well, like they do live in New York, so I know it's expensive, but like there's still something there. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm still really interested in your question of like, is this even necessary? My, my stance has changed. I think before fashion media needed to step up and hold both itself and other counterparties accountable but now part of me is trying to like understand honestly it's just clothes at the end of the day you know what (laughs) i mean well Uh, i think the thing for me that's more concerning we have talked again we we're really just broken records at this point but the thing that is more concerning about fashion is sustainability and what the consumption of fashion is doing to our planet, which is like completely irregardless of whether it's Prada or Victoria's Secret or what brand. They're manufacturing clothing. And that's the part that concerns me. And Diet Prada doesn't talk about that. So Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Let's do it. Man, I wouldn't spend too much I would not personally spend too much time on this site. It makes me really angsty which site the diet prada page it makes me like angry about things 
Okay, so my subject, I don't see a connection between yours and mine, and that might be because I picked this one myself. It comes from a Wired article, and even though the Wired article is recent, the news in it is actually not particularly recent. I think it's fine to talk about it now still. The title of the article is actually Gender Neutral Pronouns Can Change a Culture. And it starts off by introducing this fact that I thought was super interesting, I did not know, which is that in 2012, Sweden kind of officially adopted the word hen as a non-gendered pronoun. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's spelled H-E-N. Let's go with hen. So like English, Swedish used to have, or it still has, two pronouns to indicate the gender of a person. Han, which is the equivalent of she, and han, the equivalent of he. And then in 2012, this children's book author, Jesper Lundquist, wrote a book called Kiwi and the Monster Dog and referred to the main character using this non-binary pronoun, hen, which is essentially borrowed from Finland's pre-existing non-gendered pronoun. Gonna pronounce this wrong. Han? I don't know. It's an H-A-N with an umlaut above the A. (laughs) So for the past seven years, it's like kind of integrated into Swedish society. So what has happened recently is that a paper was published by Margit Tavitz and Efren O. Paris on the Swedish use of this pronoun and tested people to see whether they would actually use the non-binary pronoun. And what they did was they showed different people a cartoon person that does not clearly have a gender with a cartoon dog. And then there are these thought bubbles above the person with question marks and exclamation points. And then they ask the test subject, can you tell me what's happening? Like, just tell a story about this picture. And it turns out that people equally used the non-binary and the man and the woman options. So it seems to show that they have actually changed their mind, which gets into this big question about language that I am not decided on. Okay. And the big question about language is whether the language you speak forms the thoughts that you have. Have you ever came across that question before? Yeah. Have you ever wondered about this? I have. Yeah. And so the some people's argument is like, yes. This is a dumb example, but let's say... Before you go any further, can I remind you that you speak both Chinese and English? I do speak Chinese and English. by virtue of like those two sort of languages, like I don't know the nuances, but aren't they different in terms of wording and like how you look at things? Like I think that that itself is one of probably the best examples that you can rely on to look at how language informs your thought process. Yeah, okay, let's use Chinese and English as a concrete example, because I was going to make up an example anyway. And so in Chinese, well, in Cantonese, well, yeah, Mandarin as well, when you refer to he or she, it actually sounds the same. And you know this as well. You also speak Chinese. Barely. That's not true. When you say koi, you could be referring to him or her. And there is a different way of writing it, but when you say it verbally, you can't distinguish a difference. But obviously in English, there's he and she. But I am unable to tell you, does having 
grown up speaking Cantonese make me less biased towards seeing gender differences? Hmm. It's an interesting thought because because if you think about traditionally how gender norms have existed within Chinese culture, I don't think that the fact there's no gender pronoun changes things. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, that's how I think about it. Well, I don't know. I guess it's hard. I think I picked this subject because I don't have my mind made up on what I think. Because exactly what you just said, even though Chinese has a word that is non-binary, you can't tell if it's he or her, it doesn't mean that Chinese people are like inherently less misogynistic or like less likely to be biased towards men. But perhaps we're putting too much weight into the power of language. But then at the same time, I, I want to believe there is some, power, some power in language. But I don't otherwise, think like, what is, what, otherwise, what is the importance of like letting people choose their pronouns? But I think letting people choose their own pronouns is empowering to themselves. I think actually letting people choose their own pronouns allows them to enter the conversation and the space on their terms versus being round peg, square hole into what is currently the norm. But I, I think that it's important for us to like recognize that culture itself is never static and like to recognize and allow culture to to move and to like ebb and flow with where things are going is also critically important. Yeah, I totally agree with you that there's like very big individual significance to letting people choose their pronouns and having those pronouns not be connected to gender. I guess the question is also how does that affect us as a society does our adoption of people's individual choices for pronouns and our more frequent use of they and them rather than defaulting to he and him change the way we perceive gender yeah i think so i think that ultimately if it becomes the social norm to reference people based on uh, a different term or like you know something more neutral then you have to either get on board or face the wrath of like not adhering to cultural norms, right? I'm only defaulting to the most, to probably the worst thing possible, like let's say shame, right? Like if you're not aware of it, then suddenly you yeah. become shamed for not knowing it or not being respectful. So I think that is sort of the loose, soft power that exists when you start adopting new words and new terminologies. Mm. So that's why I think that like, mm, that's interesting. I think it is important for you to have I think it is important for you to allow new words to come in, but I don't think you should mm-hmm. be overly focused on that word changing culture. Language is but one part of how culture works, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's not a strong part of it, right? Like I think that you can see certain words yeah. based on their context, whether it's a racial slur, probably has a lot more meaning than me potentially using the wrong or not using a, ne- a neutral pronoun. But I like what you said about that choice you have to make between using they and he or them and him is this tiny moment where you have to make a decision about how you talk about gender. And it's like accumulation of all those tiny ways that you talk about it that make you have a solid opinion. So it's not so much that like the the word itself is changing your mind. It's that every time you have to use it, you are 
confirming something mm-hmm. about your belief. Did I ever tell you the example of me using the wrong descriptor, like um, in terms of people of different ethnicities? No. Grew up in Canada where we don't really have such hard, fast rules around which words you can and cannot use in, when it comes to race. And obviously, I'm not, I'm just retelling an example, but I use the word colored, right? Mm. And like, I didn't know that that actually had a negative connotation to it. Got so it. like, when I used that, I was like, oh, like, I honestly was, it was a joke, right? Like, I would refer to myself as colored, right? But then knowing mm-hmm. that there's a context from the 60s in the, in the United States that suggests that, hey, this is what it means and you cannot use that in this day and mm-hmm. age. Well, like, I would never know. But now I'm kind of, that would be like the soft power cultural norm. Because if you use it today and you are aware, then you're using it consciously to inflict some sort of yeah. meaning or in pain or whatever. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's like the more we learn about the possibilities of how people identify as different genders or on a spectrum of gender, then the way we use the language changes because, you know, you and I grew up like we're old enough that like it wasn't common to use they a lot. Like they was this plural pronoun, right, Mm -hmm. for a group of people. And so we also had to go through an education process of considering like it's not just he or she, which is like weird to think about because I don't think of myself as very old, but I definitely grew up with like he and she being the dominant pronouns and not they for an individual. I think what's interesting to me as well in particular about this article is because I had a conversation recently with a friend about whether they is actually powerful enough in English and whether we do need a new pronoun in English that is non-binary and singular. And so the fact that like Sweden did it was like kind of revolutionary to me. That they like successfully introduce this new word that people use. So it could happen. We could do it in English. Mm. I have another concrete example of how my own language around gender has changed. I noticed, did I mention this to you? That in England, people use partner a lot more than boyfriend or girlfriend. Mm. And I know that partner also kind of escalates a relationship. Like, it's up a level or to me it has this connotation of being up a level but people also don't seem to really mean it as up a level here and they seem Mm -hmm. to use it more so that it is like gender ambiguous so that people are not like immediately revealing the gender of their partner to you Mm -hmm. and it also makes it like i feel this way at least i think it makes it more inclusive of everyone's possibilities and what their relationships are like so i really like that 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 is kind of the beauty of language because it's very generational and just as much as there's trends in fashion there are trends in words slang etc yeah you can very easily determine someone not easily but within reason like oh what words are they using okay yeah that that probably indicates that they're part of this or that, or mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah. But I, this is such a stretch to diet Prada, but I'm gonna say it anyway because you made me think of it. Is like I think the English language, it, it already has benefited a lot from borrowing from other languages, but it could benefit more still. Slash, all languages can. 
So the stretch to Diet Prada is that language benefits from copying. Yeah. That's my very tenuous link to your subject. Uh, are you happy with that? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy with that. Did you find That's clarity? from me. I don't really think I did because I still think I feel like English is insufficient in a lot of ways, but that's not really like not finding clarity. I, I don't know. I I've, I go in between like I think language is really powerful. And when you use they and you use partner as examples and enough people do that, then we we change what the norm is. But at the same time, like you're totally right. Like it's it's never going to be the sole tool. Because it's not a policy changer. You know, mm-hmm. like words can saying things can only mean so much. Oh, I guess that's a kind of clarity. I think that is a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Megan, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or you forgot your name for a second Macon. there, didn't you? Did I? You, you were... I was, I was just like zoning out. I've said it too many times. We got to change up our outro so that we both stay more engaged with it. Or you can contact Eugene at E-U-G-E-N-E at Macon.com. We love hearing from you. Can you sound a little bit more excited about hearing people's feedback? We love hearing from you. That was not. That was sarcastic. Um, we genuinely love hearing from you. How's that? Well, was that I'm going to keep all of those cuts in there. So they're going to hear the full gamut. Terrible. But anyways, I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. Maybe for episode 100, we really do change the outro. Because <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I'm I'm bored with it.